0: Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, Lieutenant General Clancy, and members of the Defense Forces. Welcome to the RDS Library and Archives for the Speaker Series. My name is Lara Musto, I'm the Librarian of the RDS, and I hope you're all waiting and looking forward to have an interesting, informative evening. May I take a moment to ask you all to put your phones on silent, please. Um, so our enjoyment is not going to be disturbed. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you the Chairperson of the Library and Archives Committee, Ms. Deidre Nacton.
1: Good evening, all. Well, I have the pleasure this evening to introduce you to our outstanding guest. Lieutenant General uh, Sean Clancy of the Irish Defence Forces. You are very welcome indeed. Um, He started his career in the Air Corps in the early 80s, has served in numerous positions of command, and as you will learn, has held some very interesting and some very challenging roles, and now has the honour of being the first airman in the Irish state to hold the top post of Chief of Staff There are, I think, many different aspects of his work and service that we could focus on with Relish this evening. So what he is going to do is to use as a background parts of the new documentary film in the service of the state. And for those of you who have yet got a chance to see it, it's very new, it is beautifully shot, moving, and a very informative documentary made for the centenary of the Defence Forces this year, 2022. I mean, I think personally, I would go as far as to say it should be compulsory watching for all of the Irish nation. Um, It certainly broadens your knowledge, but also your pride in the whole organisation. So the Chief of Staff is going to discuss some of the key periods of the past 100 years of the Defence Forces. And we were learning here on the RDS committee as we were preparing for this series that the title Defense Forces is the more correct one because I think many of us very easily lapse into just calling it the Army. But of course the Defense Forces uh, incorporates the three permanent forces, the Army, the Air Corps and the Naval Service And, of course, we also have a um, reserve. So, tonight I think we're going to hear uh, a little bit of the history, uh, to hear in particular about the decades of their peacekeeping uh, around the world and of relationships built, be that in places like the Lebanon or Congo, Cyprus, Bosnia. We're also going to hear about the broadness of the range of work that is done here at home in Ireland since the foundation of the state. And indeed um, about the part played in more recent things like the uh, Mediterranean migrant crisis. I think in general we're going to get an overall wonderful insight into the world. The achievements, uh, especially in terms of security and democracy, the dedication, and sometimes, of course, the high cost of life and living within the forces. Lara, uh, Lara Musto, our Lara Bainian, has had a, a very engaging day, I think, with the Chief of Staff, um, which we were learning uh, and setting up this evening, and share that enthusiasm with all of us. So we're very much looking forward to your presentation. Therefore, I think without keeping you any further, may I again say a warm welcome and a preemptive thanks to our speaker, Lieutenant General, Sean Clancy, Chief of Staff.
2: Welcome Deirdre, and lovely compliments and lovely words. Uh, really appreciate them. And uh, can I just, in the first instance, say good evening, everybody. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be with you here this evening. Uh, I hope you get some insights uh, and understanding of the defence forces, O Gligne and its service to the states over the 100 years, and that's my aim this evening. And as Jesse and Rod Thompson said, "Shah, son, you will learn a lot, son, on a special Shah." Because and uh, I would like to state, if I can, at the very outset, that unlike the wonderful librarians and archivists that you have here in the RDS, I'm not a historian. And it's in that context I will make my presentation. Um, and one might say, as the fact that i'm not a historian that i might you might argue that i'm perhaps not the best placed to present on the defense force and its 100 years of history however though as a successor to collins mulcahy and 31 chiefs of oakland that have preceded me in the past 100 years i think i'm perhaps best placed and most appropriately placed person to recount the 100 years in the words, as it were, of a Chief of Staff at this very poignant time in our history. Can I start off by just thanking, in the first instance, Professor Owen Lewis and the RDS themselves for opening up this wonderful, beautiful site to me and to Ogligna Hearn this evening. I would like to extend my very warm thanks to uh, Ms. Lara Mosto, who did enthusiastically meet with me uh, over lunch and a few? we had a warm discussion uh, as the RDS Librarian, to Deirdre Nocton herself, who was the RDS Library and Archives Committee Chairperson. Thank you for your warm welcome and your enthusiasm also in you know, promoting this event and being behind it all the way. And the archivist, Ms. Ms Natasha Cern, and all of the library staff indeed for your very, very kind invitation participate in this very significant RDS Library speaker series. And all of this, of course, to I'd like to extend my thanks as well to uh, Dennis Bergen, our friend and member of Vogelgneherren in the past, of course, who's proposed this idea, if I may, in the very first instance. And uh, I won't use the word coercion because uh, it wasn't quite that way. But Dennis certainly uh, and myself have discussed for some time, at some stage, maybe being in a position to do something in this site. And uh, I've reached, I suppose, the position of Chief of Staff of Oglinger Heron in the past 14 months. And it just seemed in the time and space of 100 years, it was the right time to perhaps do this. If I can take an opportunity at the beginning rather than forget it at the end, I, I do want to extend my warm thanks to my own staff and in particular our own archive staff, uh, Daniel Iotis, who himself recently published a wonderful book called The Military Archives uh, on that very true Irish treasure, and a lot of you probably are aware of it, the National Military Archives. Dan, along with his colleague and uh, our own officer of Stephen McKeown, who is a historian by his own right, and the soldier who has been our representative on the expert advisory group under the chair of Morris Manning during the decade of centenaries. And finally to Commandant Gemma Fagan who along with a very dedicated team of arch- in archives as our public relations person has played a huge part in the delivery of the documentary you will see later but also the publication initiatives we have pursued throughout this year in particular. That team together have supported me greatly in trying to present a factually accurate um, recall and recount this evening to you, so I hope that you will all take something from it. They do say if you enter a room for a lecture or for a discussion in any period of time over an hour, if you walk away having learned three things, you will have maximized the potential of that hour. So I only propose to speak for 40 minutes, uh, but we will then view uh, the documentary we have purposefully and I would hope you would think tastefully captured the 100 years of our history through the conversations uh, of our people, if you like, and others in support. And we will wrap up perhaps then with some of your questions or maybe some of your observations or comments might be more appropriate because I think there are those in the room that are far more greater in terms of their observations and in terms of their knowledge than perhaps I am. And so if I can start by stating of the individual years of the current decade of centenaries, which has been commemorated and critically engaged with the formative years, and events that occurred throughout the island of Ireland during the 1913-1923 period, 1922 is arguably the most significant to the Irish Defence Forces. Because it was in 1922 was the year that the National Army was established, originating from the split in the IRA between those pursuing the democratic impetus and popular mandate for the Anglo-Irish Treaty and those who rejected it, as falling short of the idealism of the 1916 rising, raised and soon rapidly expanded due to the exigencies of the service of the Civil War by the provisional government, the de facto and the de jure authority in the country at that time. It soon received very formal legislative underpinning, that is, Ogling the Heron by the Defence Forces Temporary Provisions Act of 1923. And we're always caught in that dichotomy. What is our centenary? Is it 1922? Or is it the formative legislative Provisional Act of 1923? And if you can wrap that around the sensitivities that encapsulated some of the events that I will speak about in that split between the treaty, uh, pro and anti-treaty sides, you will see the thread of how we have celebrated a very significant part in 1922 of the bark handovers, and next year we will formally celebrate those who have died in service during that period at our national commemoration of our national army in Glasnevin in 1923, uh, through next year, 2023, in Glasnevin itself. And that's a very deliberate strategy from my part as Chief of Staff in order to take a very mature and reflective approach, an inclusive approach, to the, I suppose, the end of that decade of centenary. Under Section 22 of that Act, the Armed Forces of Ireland were officially designated the title the Defence Forces on the 1st of October 1924. The Civil War was a very tragic and a very bitterly fought conflict. And with lasting implications for modern Ireland, atrocities were committed on both sides, and I think we can all recognise that. The new state's very survival as a democratic political entity was contingent on the success of the National Army in defeating the anti-treaty forces. And from a military point of view, it was a baptism of fire for the new National Army. As many as the 1,000 soldiers of the National army died as a result of that tragic conflict and their service to the state at that time, which is sometimes forgotten. This was a major factor in ensuring that the nascent state survived at all, and that its transition to democracy was so relatively smooth in contemporary transnational terms. At the same time, Members of the National Army under the direction of our government were tasked with carrying out the executions of at least 81 fellow Irishmen whose anniversaries occur in the coming weeks and months, many of them in our own barracks here in the state. As the current Chief of Staff, I do wish to put on record that whatever the causes of the Civil War and the subsequent hurt and divisions that it caused in our society. Our modern Oglignaherrn today cherishes the memories of all those who lost their lives during that conflict, including innocent civilians. Today, as an apolitical organisation in the service of the state, Oglignaherrn is representative of Irish women and men from all backgrounds. After the Civil War, the imperfections of wartime exigencies were soon addressed. Control of the military was vested in the government to be exercised through the Minister for Defence. The ability of the Minister for Defence to wield executive military command or to be a member of the forces on full pay was ended. Thus addressing the democratically undesirable situation whereby one man, had simultaneously served as both Minister for Defence and the Commander-in-Chief. In an era that saw the rise of authoritarianism in Europe, the significance of this voluntary separation of political and military power at this early stage should not be underestimated and stands as a testimony to an attitude that prioritized the implementation of democratic processes in establishing the new state. The Army Mutiny of 1924, a movement which was confined to a small group of dissatisfied senior officers, represented the final death throes of resistance to the transition from the chaos of war and decentralised guerrilla forces to the establishment of democratic institutions. The outcome of this turmoil was to copper fasten and the copper fastening of the essential democratic principle of the subordination of the nation's military to the poly- body politic and its elective representatives and that remains steadfast to this day. For the century since, this principle has remained sacrosanct, also to the ethos of Ogling-Nahern. Whether during the civil war, the emergency, or the troubles, Representing Irish foreign policy and multilateral aspirations and overseas service, overseas service with the United Nations, European Union, or the NATO Partnership for Peace, or participating in the national response to COVID 19 or the cyber attack on the HSC, Ogleknigharn has consistently worked in the service of the state as a key safeguard of Irish democracy. In the service of the state, Oghlignehairn 1922 to 2022, which I said will be screened very, very shortly, it is a, dec- a documentary that we commissioned to mark this very important centenary and reflect upon the legacy that I have just mentioned. And in that reflection for Oghlignehairn, when we look upon the origins and our journey over the past century. There was no more significant set of commemorative events this year than those marking the handover of the military barracks by the British Army. The decade leading up to 1922 was one of great change in Ireland. The political upheaval accelerated by the 1916 Easter Rising culminated in the 1919-1921 War of Independence. The political outcome of that war was the adoption by democratic majority of the December 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty. As we all know too well, a bitter and tragic civil war was fought from 1922 to May 1923, originating in unresolved questions about the, participation, about the partition of Ireland, the extent of freedom that the treaty offered and a sizable minority who rejected it. As I have alluded to earlier, atrocities were committed by both the anti-Treaty IRA and the National Army at places like Loch and Bally Sidi, names and events that still resonate for their violence and tragedy. Despite ending in this terrible conflict, the revolutionary decade resulted in the emergence of an Irish Free State. Not ultimate freedom, but freedom to achieve freedom, as supporters of the treaty understood, a position that led to Ireland becoming a de facto republic under the 1937 constitution and officially a republic in 1949. The handover of military barracks in 1922 represented a key moment in military, social and national history. The departure of the British garrison, the physical expression of British power in Ireland, represented the end of seven centuries of colonial power. Of the numerous barracks and posts taken over in 1922, just 15 remain in operational use by ogling today. This in itself reflects the major shifts in the constitution and disposition of the defence forces over the past century. Beggars Bush on Haddington Road, Dublin, was the first barracks taken over on the 31st of January 1922. The following day, the first uniformed soldiers of the National Army The unit named the Dublin Guard, which was made up of former IRA active service unit men, marched from the Phoenix Park through the streets of Dublin to Beggar's Bush for the official ceremony led by General Richard Mulcahy, who later succeeded General Michael Collins as Commander-in-Chief of ogling And I am very fortunate and privileged to be their successor today. While the bulk of the National Army was, of course, infantry soldiers on the ground, it is worth noting that Ireland had developed its own fledging air service, later to become the Air Corps as early as 1922. Now, I couldn't stand here in a blue uniform and not mention that fact. (laughs) A Martinside single-engined passenger biplane piloted by the ex-RAF Irishmen was on standby near London during the treaty negotiations in case the delegation would have to be evacuated. The state's air assets played a small but significant role during the Civil War also, carrying out vital reconnaissance work. The handovers themselves of the barracks were completed on the 17th of December, with the last being the Royal Barracks in Dublin, later named Collins's Barracks, Ogleknaharn marched out of here for the last time in 1997, and it became part of the National Museum of Ireland, featuring the immensely popular Soldiers and Chiefs exhibition, and in many ways, fulfilling the role of our National Military Museum. It illustrates the inextricable link between the story of Ogleknaharn and the story of the modern Irish state. Our strategic partnership with the National Museum of Ireland exists to this day and I'm very pleased to announce that next week we will be launching a brand new exhibition at Collins Barracks to explain the national significance of the 1922 handovers and during that we will unveil a completely restored 18 pounder field gun used by the National Army in 1922. The story of the neherne is one of ebb and flow. Its fortunes rising and falling on the sea of statecraft. Transition from a Civil War peak of about 55,000 to a peacetime force required massive, often difficult, demobilization. But by 1925 the Defence Forces had come through it and was trying to adjust to its peacetime role. With time and space now available for a comprehensive view of the state's defensive needs, the Chief of Staff at the time, Padre McMahon, established the Army Organization Board to advise on the modernization necessary to fulfill the functions of a modern army in relation to national defense. And here I am as Chief of Staff a year later responding to a commission of defense on reorganization of the defense forces to a modern fit-for-purpose army and defence forces. History does repeat itself. Reporting in June 1926, it recommended a conversion of the defence forces from its semi-immobile basis orientated towards dealing with the internal disorder to one which was more mobile and more flexible. A predominantly reserve force would supplement the regular army, which would provide a scaffolding, if you will, for which the main body of the Defence Forces would be built up in time of war. The modern Defence Forces prides itself on cultivating positive relationships and cooperation with colleagues in other armed forces, sharing our experience across areas such as explosive ordnance disposal and engineering specialist search, the skill sets that we mastered, if you like, during the Troubles. But also learning from those others and other militaries in areas such as cyber and new international conflict the origins of this culture can be traced all the way back to those formative years when to expand the organization's board the organization board set up by Patter mcmahon and its work and expand the knowledge of the general staff The government sanctioned the departure of six officers on a military mission to the U.S. of A. Here, they conducted a general study of the legislation governing American defense and its military system, with a particular focus on military education. The mission proved to be a very important milestone in the modernization of the early defense forces, particularly informing the establishment of our military college based in the Curragh Camp. The professional military education and training of our personnel, including the adoption of foreign tactics and procedures, was a feature of the Defence Forces from the earliest period and as I mentioned, continues to this present day. There were of course other developments in that formative decade for the Defence Forces, developments which have made a lasting contribution to Irish cultural life, our Army School of Music which celebrates its centenary next year, was a crucial component in state ceremonial from the very earliest period, and it had the honour to first arrange Our Ronde and perform it ever since on state occasions. Our Army Equitation School was founded in 1926 with the mission of promoting Ireland and the Irish horse. Of course members of the Royal Dublin Society here will be very much aware that the Society had no small role in promoting the development of the Equitation School from its very inception. From the Defence Force's perspective and as Chief of Staff, I am very happy to share this perspective for us. Judge Wiley of the Society was instrumental in in his liaison with Colonel Hogan, the then Quartermaster General, and President W.T. Cosgrave, which brought about the School in the first instance. From the outset, the RDS has been interwoven into the fabric of the Defence Forces Equitation School. And as anyone that has seen our trophy room in McKee Barracks will testify, as will our riders who have successfully been competing here now for almost 100 years. Most memorably, of course, I think we all say over those fabled Aga Khan Trophy days. The litmus test of the defence forces as a pillar of Irish democracy came in 1932. Just six years previously, Éamon de Valera had brought many anti-treatyites in from the cold with the establishment of his Fianna Fáil party, accepting the primacy of democratic institutions and the will of the people over armed insurgency. In the general election of 1932, Fianna Fáil came to power and a scrutinising eye fell on Oglignaherrn to see if we would continue to serve under leaders with whom they had been at war less than a decade previously. There were indeed elements within the Defence Forces, within the Guard of Sierkhana and civil life who considered undermining Ireland's fledging democracy at that time, advocating a coup against the Fianna Fáil government. The guard Commissioner and former General Officer Commanding the Forces Olo Duffy went as far as canvassing Defence Forces support for a military dictatorship. Such moves were quickly and decisively stifled by the Chief of Staff, Major General Michael Brennan, who reaffirmed the Forces intention to support the newly elected government. On the 9th of March 1932, the peaceful transfer of power was completed. And Ireland and Oglignar had reached an important milestone in vouchsafing the primacy of democracy in our young state. And it's worth noting that as an aside that we do remain one of the oldest democratic nation-states in the world. The next great challenge of the Defence Forces was the threat to Irish freedom and democracy that came about in 1939 with the outbreak of the Second World War. Referred to in Ireland as the emergency, this was not a, a twee euphemism, euphemism but a, a name derived from the Emergencies Power Act of 1939. Along with several other European states, including Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, Ireland declared itself neutral in that conflict. And as such, the emergency represented a penultimate preparatory stage prior to invasion by either axis or allied forces, and a state of war on Irish soil. In the immediately preceding years, it had been estimated that a force of 100,000 would be needed to defend Ireland from external attack. Once again, the disconnect between stated defence policy and actual defence resourcing meant that the Irish state found itself sorely unprepared to defend its sovereign territory and its citizens. That particular line is echoed once again in the Commission on the Defence Forces of of 2022. It has been commented, commented that Ireland, as a neutral, had never really accepted its obligations under the 1907 Hague Convention to stand up military's forces that would defend that neutrality in time of war. We often say in the service that freedom is not free. By September 1939, the Defence Forces stood at a mere 19,100 on paper, 11,500 of which was made up of reservists. This was well below the Defence Force's own war establishment of 37,000. The reality for war was stark. Involvement in a war between the major European powers not only put Irish independence at risk, but also risked enhancing IRA support and even a second civil war by joining a war at Britain's instigation. The Marine and Coast Watching Service, specifically established as part of Ireland's defensive measures, maintained a 24-hour guard on Ireland's shores during the war years. Now, these aircraft obviously aren't from that period. It is the background that is from that period of era. And these were the signs, of course, that the Coastal Watch had around our state. Their primary duty was to sound the alarm if a seaborne invasion of Ireland occurred. They reported sightings of submarines, warships and military overflights directly to Defence Force's intelligence branch, giving a real-time picture of the Battle of the Atlantic around Ireland. The Coast Watchers were part-time soldiers, about 800 in total, and were truly inheritors of the volunteer ethos of Hogling the that goes back to the Irish Volunteers. Their civilian lives as seafarers and coastal farmers gave them unique and unrivalled local knowledge of the areas they guarded, making them immensely valuable to the military. The technology available to these men was basic – telescopes, binoculars, and the human eye. However, the information they provided was vital to Ireland's leaders as they sought to ensure the state's neutrality. As the manifestation of the democratic mandate of the state to exercise physical and lethal force, the Defence Forces navigated dire straits with the diplomacy and pragmatism essential to fulfill the government the requirements of the government's necessary pol- policy of ambivalent neutrality. These realities are perhaps best illustrated by Ireland's involvement with the 18th military mission. On the 6th of July, 1940, the Chief of Staff, Major General Dan McKenna, shared his assessment with the Minister of Defence, Oscar Traynor, that, and I quote, as a neutral state we may be attacked by Germany or England. McKenna planned accordingly for possible British aggression as well as cooperation. It was in relation to the latter that the 18th military mission was established. And that was to ensure that proper cooperation exists between British and ERA forces, with Irish officers attached to British general and operational headquarters. The records of the 18th military mission document joint, document joint planning for refugee reception areas in the event of German invasion. Irish plans for the provision of forward dumps and the carrying out of works to facilitate the British Army's move south including the survey of suitable areas for aerodromes and the construction of movable runways and complementary Irish plans to extend our own fixed defences as part of joint operations. Throughout this period, despite limited resources, the defence forces were not found wanting. The Emergency Powers Act had been enacted just two days after the declaration of war in Europe and out of obligation as a neutral actor to be able to defend our own territory and prevent either belligerents using it for the conduct of operations, the Defence Forces rigorously set about making the necessary preparations and by 1941 the Defence Force's strength had grown to over 40,500 as the calls to arms was answered throughout the State. By the summer of 1942 the Defence Forces was in a position to conduct the largest combined training exercise in the history of the state. The Blackwater manoeuvres saw over 20,000 men and 1,500 vehicles take part in a simulated reaction to an invasion along the south coast. And at the conclusion of the exercise, the chief of staff very boldly declared that the defense forces was now an effective and mobile field force. At the conclusion of the war, he opined that the Defence Forces, as it stood, was probably the finest achievement he had attained since the country won its freedom. Ireland did not emerge unscathed from the war, however. Some 25 members of Ogling the died during the conflict, either through diffusing of many of the 1,000 sea mines washed ashore, through robust military exercise, or in training accidents. And many more civilians, of course, died as a result of the Luftwaffe bombings on land and against Irish merchant shipping. From the end of the emergency, until Ireland's first deployment of troops to the UN-mandated mission in the Congo in 1960, the Defence Forces once again receded in the face of dramatic cuts to defence spending. The secrecy surrounding the 18th military mission and other clandestine support to the Allied forces had shrouded the extent to which Irish neutrality moved far beyond the ostensible complete impartiality that was publicly portrayed at that time. Because of its neutrality during the war, Ireland found itself internationally isolated. The League of Nations was dissolved in 1946, and Irish membership of the newly formed United Nations was vetoed no more than four times between 1946, no fewer rather, 1946 and 1955. And strangely enough, that was by the Soviet Union. Ireland's link to the Commonwealth was severed in 1949, when the country became a republic and Ireland declined joining NATO as such a collective defence pact was considered a tacit acceptance of partition. Articles 2 and 3 of our constitution at that time still claimed all 32 counties of Ireland, and admission to NATO alongside the United Kingdom was considered inconsistent with the unresolved question ogling nahirn found renewed purpose, however, in 1958 with the first deployment of Irish officers overseas with the UN. Ireland finally gained membership of the United Nations in 1955, three years prior to that. And just three years later, it made its first contribution to the United Nations peacekeeping in response to the call from the UN Secretary-General for an Irish contingent to serve with the UN Observer Force in Lebanon, UNIGIL in an unarmed observer role and two years later Ireland deployed its first troop mission overseas this time to the Congo and engagements such as the Battle of Jaddafil and the Battle of the Tunnel demonstrated the military prowess of professionalism of the Irish soldier. However this mission also brought home to Oglignaghirn and the Irish public the true cost of military service. Nine Irish soldiers lost their lives in the Niemba Ambush in November 1960, and a total of 26 Irish soldiers gave their lives in the service of peace over the four-year duration of this mission. To date, 87 Irish soldiers have died while in overseas service. The greatest number of these have occurred while serving with UNIFIL. United Nations interim force in Lebanon which was established following the Israeli invasion of 1978 and the mission most inextricably linked with Irish UN service in the public mind and since that first service of troops in 1960 the defense forces have had a continuous unbroken service with the United Nations and what that means is every day since there has been Irish defense forces personnel in overseas service with the United Nations as part of this state's contribution. Out of this baptism of fire, peacekeeping became a central tenet of the Irish participation in the UN and the Defence Forces, if you like, became the physical manifestation of the Irish foreign policy. And thus began oakley very proud and unbroken legacy of UN peacekeeping. From the first deployment of 1958 until this very, f- very f- this very day, Irish troops have and continue to fly and represent us under the blue flag. Through overseas service in the cause of peace, Ogligny Hearn came to represent Ireland Incorporated. So on the world stage, it is known as a peacekeeper a neutral mediator seeking international justice and peace. And if you like, Ireland has become among the staunchest supporters of multilateralism in the world as a consequence. Through our overseas activities with the United Nations, NATO Partnership for Peace, European defense initiatives, including the EU battle group, and various humanitarian agencies, ogilk has proven to be a loyal ambassador and representative of the people of Ireland. While UN Overseas Service has become synonymous with the modern perception of Ogleknaghairn and a cornerstone of Irish foreign policy, 1969 also saw the beginning of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. This brought with it an increased focus on internal security and counter insurgency operations and the requirement for Ogleknaghairn along with other arms of the state to strengthen border security and counter the subversive activities of terrorist groups within the Irish state, in particular the provisional IRA. Between 1969 and 1998 the scale of military operations within Ireland reached levels not seen since the emergency. The numbers in service both permanent and reserved increased again in the 1970s as the parameters of defence planning evolved to include the security risks posed by the Troubles. During this time Ogligna Hearn undertook countless operations from manning checkpoints to providing explosive escort and explosive disposal services, from securing vital infrastructure and installations to providing armed escorts to high-value targets such as explosives, cash, VIPs and subversive prisoners, to name many, many more. In doing so, meeting all the demands made of it within its available resources, Oakley ensured the military capability necessary to underpin the Government's authority in addressing the threats to the State and its democratic institutions. And just as with overseas and wartime operations, service on Ireland was not without its cost. In 1983, Private Patrick Kelly became the first soldier to be killed in the line of duty within the state since the emergency or the Second World War. Private Kelly died alongside trainee guard Gary Sheehan, while both were involved in the rescue of Don Tidy at Derrida Wood in County Leedrum. Don Tidy of course had been kidnapped by the provisional IRA. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the peace process of 1998, the latter part of the 20th century saw both the national and the international dynamics shift yet again. With the increasing prevalence of asymmetrical warfare, the older peacekeeping models of unarmed observers and light infantry forces had to adapt. While more UN-mandated missions, in the wake of the Brahimi Report, published in 2000, ceded initial leadership to regional, supranational organisations like the EU and the African Union. Irish commitments to peacekeeping operations were re-evaluated at this time, and the Defence Amendment Acts of 1993 and 2006 widened the parameters governing Obligne deployment overseas to include chapter seven which went from peacekeeping to include also peace enforcement operations and this is a very significant step. Our personnel since 2000 have provided their trademark professionalism in peace operations through thousands of tours of duties in some of the world's most troubled areas from East Timor to Liberia Kosovo to Chad to the Congo sadly as I said these operations have not been without cost and while our air corps personnel have continued to perform vital services for the state at home again with our air crews sometimes paying the ultimate sacrifice the Navy provided unprecedented assistance in the rescue of migrants in the Mediterranean through operation Sophia in the years just past On the international stage, it is Ireland's role and position within the EU that has come to the fore in recent years, and it is very much within this milieu that Ogligna Hearn finds itself as we address Ireland's and Europe's newest security concerns. Recently, EU Commission President Ursula van der Leyen, who visited here only last week, She stated that never before has the EU Parliament debated the State of the Union with war raging on European soil. And that our our Union as a whole has risen to the occasion. She lauded the demonstration of speed and resolve of action that has evolved since the financial crisis of 2007 through the COVID pandemic and laterally the EU's rapid reaction to Russia's illegal war on Ukraine. Not since the breakup of the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s have we seen such widespread conflict in Europe. The realisation that the war in Ukraine borders—that no, this war borders no less than four EU countries—is something that has hit home here in Ireland. While our awareness of what it really means to have energy and food security. This awareness has been heightened to a degree not seen since the oil crisis of the 1970s. Indeed, that word security, often summarized simply as the absence of threat to our way of life, is beginning to feature more prominently in mainstream discussions in Ireland, perhaps in the realization of the fact that securing this state is in fact our own sovereign responsibility. In European defence circles, we had become accustomed to a post-Cold War or post-9-11 world order in which terrorism posed the greatest existential threat to our democracies. Now we see the re-emergence of conventional warfare stalking our eastern borders, just as it did in the Second World War. The geopolitical situation is changing rapidly. And we, as defence professionals, of course, have an acronym for this, we call it VUCA, that volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous state. Perhaps the best example of VUCA has been the emergence of cyber warfare as a domain beyond our traditional understanding of land, sea and air domains. Our state has very recently had to deal with the consequences of unpreparedness for such attacks. Similarly the conduct of sub-threshold warfare is perhaps new to us, but it can consist of anything from the spread of disinformation to state-sponsored terrorism and cybercrime to the deliberate subversion of democracy itself. The Nord Stream attacks, which you may be familiar with, were the most recent challenge to our EU and NATO colleagues during the current conflict. The timing of these attacks coinciding with the opening of the Norway to Poland pipeline was clearly intended as a signal to the EU that its energy infrastructure as well as its supply are critical vulnerabilities that can be exploited. And if we are turning southwards beyond Europe, the challenges in the Sahel region continue to grow with Mali and now Burkina Faso expressing pro-Russian support. And an increasingly anti EU sentiment. For Mali, overall, there is a worrying outlook, with increasingly isolationist rhetoric strengthening cooperation with a Wagner group and Russia, and actions impeding MINUSMA operations con- continuing. This deterioration in the situation across the Sahel from the Central African Republic to Burkina Faso to Mali has negative and, as of yet, unquantified consequences for the EU. Elsewhere, if we look at the rise of China and its influence through the Belt and Road Initiative across the Asian continent, the Indian Ocean and true Africa remains a cause for concern with ramifications for Ireland and the broader EU. Closer to home, the publication in February of this year of the Comprehensive Report of the Commission on Defence Forces has fortunately, or in one sense perhaps unfortunately, coincided with this worrying destabilisation of the wider security environment. For oglig we now have for the first time in a generation both the political will and the financial support. transform our organization into a much more effective military instrument for the state it would be remiss of me as the chief of staff not to make consistent and cogent arguments to enhance the defense of our country as I have done so since I took office some 12 months and more ago unfortunately it seems clear that we are at a threshold of a new era in which rules-based international systems will be replaced by a new system. For Ireland, a strong proponent of multilateralism and of institutions like the United Nations, this indeed is a worrying trend. It is still too early to assess how far this ev- development will go, and in what direction, or whether it will be a more, frag- if, but for sure, it will be a more fragmented world order where power means more than law and principles. But the direction is as yet, unfortunately, still unclear. We cannot, however, put our heads in the sand. Whatever the direction of travel, the people of Ireland can be sure of one thing. Our defence forces, after 100 years, will remain steadfast, will remain loyal, and will remain at all times in the service of the state. And that brings me to something perhaps far more entertaining than I speaking, where you will get the opportunity to view the premier public screening of our documentary, In the Service of the State, Ogling 1922 to 2022, which captures the key chapters of the Defence Forces through 100 years' history that history that I have been weaving into this discussion so far this evening. I would like to mention that this documentary is 48 minutes long in total, but you can be assured and comforted by the fact that we have edited it right down to 23 minutes or so this evening. <laughs> it was like um, it was like separation from your child from some of my team. <laughs> Believe me, it was a hardship but I think we have captured the essence of it through our people. Our commemorations team decided that rather than produce a somber documentary based purely on political history, what we chose to do rather was to celebrate that which makes our people so special. Their service over the past 100 years and indeed the support of their families that that enable such service. We were very fortunate to have the assistance of Professor, Mar- Professor Marie Coleman of Queen's University in Belfast, who has recently and was recently selected to contribute to participate in the of 100 series with talks and Michael D. Higgins. Her expertise underpins the documentary. And that, with the contribution of our own veterans and personnel whose families have incredible stories of service, brings the reality, if you like, of what it is that we have done in the last 100 years brings it in a very human and impactful way from my perspective it also includes a handful of personal reflections from our serving personnel some of whom have a remarkable 100 years unbroken family service to this state and therefore the documentary that we have commissioned with record media has taken nearly a year to produce but it marks this very important milestone by condensing 100 years of Defence Forces service and history, which is further condensed now to less than 23 minutes or so, and I can assure you that was not an easy task. I continue to be immensely proud of our organisation and of the personnel that serve the State. The loyalty and commitment that is displayed is the foundation upon which our organisation stands and the reason for our continued success. A military is nothing without its people that are willing to serve, but most importantly, it's about those who will serve in the future. And I'm very confident that we, as Ogling Nahern, will stand firm for another one hundred years. So please sit back and enjoy this fantastic piece of work, and I'll come back in a moment.
0: The withdrawal of the British Army from Ireland was probably the most obvious manifestation of the political change which was, on, which was taking place. The change of authority from direct rule from Westminster to native Irish
2: government. At the beginning of that year, of course, we saw the, the first uniformed national army on our streets when they, they marched through the city and when Michael Collins and other ministers stood on the steps of the city hall and took a salute as they walked and marched to Beggar's Bush to take over the, the barracks that was then Beggar's Bush.
0: Throughout the spring of 1922, what was happening in parallel with the British evacuation was the split in on, uh, over the treaty spreading from initially from a political split but becoming a military split, splitting the pre-Civil uh, War IRA into two into the pro and anti-treaty factions. The leaders of the new pro-treaty army who emerged really were Collins initially, also Richard Mulcahy, Ono Duffy, Sean
2: McEwan. The Defence Forces really only have fought one war, and that was a civil war in 1922.
3: My great-grandfather, uh, Jerry Boland, uh, was involved in the Easter Rising in 1916, along with his two brothers, uh, Ned and Harry and his sister, uh, Kate, who was a member of mBan. The Boland side of the family uh, were very much kind of stuck to sort of a, a, the anti-treaty uh, side when the negotiations happened and subsequently sided with that at the outbreak of the, of the
2: Civil War. The atrocities that came about through conflict, as they do in any conflict, we have to be very mindful of that. Uh, Collins himself, of course, perished in August as, as, a, as a consequence of that conflict. Um, Collins is still held in very high regard in, in oglick We look at him as really I suppose an icon in one sense. Uh, I think nationally we look at him as an icon but certainly the defence forces is held in very high, great esteem. In fact it was in this barracks here uh, which was known as Portobello barracks at the time where he resided uh, as commander-in-chief. But even to I suppose understand the complexities of the conflict at that time when we look later on when this barracks was renamed as Cahill Brewer barracks Cahill Brewer fought on the anti-treaty side so you have collins who was associated with this barracks when it was called Portobello barracks and you've Brewer barracks as it is named today that in itself signifies and symbolizes the complexity of it
3: so Cahill Brewer was my great grandad and being a relative of his uh, and growing up, I had an interest in the Defence Forces. But it was certainly a reason that, that drove me that little bit extra and motivated me uh, to join. After 1916, he was wounded so badly that the British forces felt that he he wouldn't live and he certainly wouldn't pose much of a threat. So he wasn't executed like a lot of the other leaders and he wasn't imprisoned. So a lot fell on his plate then because he had to reorganise Uh, more so the political side in Ireland.
0: I get the impression within the Defence Forces there is something of a sense that Irish governments immediately after it were somewhat embarrassed by the whole episode and drew a line under it, to the extent that even remembering the sacrifice of members of the Defence Forces was not done to the level that uh, people in the army might have felt was appropriate. For example, there's a National Army plot in Glasnevin which was neglected for decades by Irish governments, in really seen as a as a sense that we would prefer that civil war never happened. But at the same time it did happen and those people died in the service of the state. <laughs>
4: Um, came for a warning, and so I was able volunteers and a lot of people. I was able to get to get so, I of people to to
5: My great-grandfather hailed from Ballinus Law in County Galway. He was Christopher Jordan, signed up in 1922 and since him there has been a hundred years continuous service in my family. My dad would have served with maybe the first um, female platoon that came in in, in 1981, it would have been his first interaction I suppose. I've often said I wonder what he would have thought. you know he's two daughters serving now. Um, I think it has changed. I think it's evolved um, in time. When they initially came in, they were non combatant. Um, where now most women can do most roles. Um, so it has changed. My dad was a CISU instructor. Um, when he was instructing, he probably wouldn't have instructed females on armoured vehicles. You know, back then, where now the women drive the armoured vehicles, no problem. So it has changed
4: drastically, you know, over the years. I've been the a small forest now on made canney in of marban catun on fide canere august umper on re the to go and dogchen and spodarts on to so Tommy guler and level me other the fruit helena
2: females into service um, over 40 years ago it hasn't been rapid enough and it hasn't been successful enough Um, we stand today as a defense force with seven percent of our our force and our members are female that's too low a figure when when we if we are going to be a, a mirror of society if we're a microcosm of society we need to be more representative
0: After the Civil War, the next big challenge for the Irish Army and Defence Forces was the emergency, as the Second World War period was known in era. The new Chief of Staff of the Army, Dan McKenna, had taken over in early 1940. McKenna was very well aware that the Army needed upgrading, needed modernizing, modernizing needed new personnel. A lot of its personnel at that point still went back to the early 1920s and they were aging. So he recognized that in order to defend a neutral country, first of all, the army had to increase in size, that it had to improve its border defenses and generally its its strategic alliances. Now, he also recognized that the best way to do that, to defend a small neutral country, was being very friendly with its nearest belligerent ally, the United Kingdom. The defence forces at the time of the emergency were quite small. We're really talking about the army and it was was increased in size quite significantly. A local defence force was added and then at the end of the war the naval service was set up because I think the Irish realised how isolated they were and how difficult it was to get goods and things into Ireland during the emergency. So we we have a significant change to the defence forces with the setting up of the naval service in 1946.
6: My name is uh, Colonel George Curtin. I'm retired from the Defence Forces. I joined on the 6th of April 1972 and retired on the 29th of November 2010, on my 60th birthday. I had almost 39 years, fantastic years, in Ogling-Nahirn. The people of the War of Independence, 1960, War of Independence, Civil War, they saw through the Army, through the emergency in 1940. The people from 1940 saw through the Congo and all of the other missions. You know. They were the trailblazers, but they paved the way for what is today Oakley
0: One of the impacts of Irish neutrality during the emergency, or the Second World War, was that in the post-war period, Ireland was isolated internationally, and it wasn't until 1955 10 years after the setting up of the UN and the end of the war that the Republic of Ireland was finally admitted to the UN.
6: I suppose to start with the people that went out in 1958 a big leap into the unknown you know back in 1958 very very few people would be outside of Ireland you know people would have had of those 50 officers that have to go and find a map to pick out where Lebanon was and, and what was happening there you know.
7: The Congo was the army's I suppose baptism of fire in the modern period in that service overseas with the United Nations had started with Unogil to, to Lebanon in 1958. But in 1960, the United Nations in New York asked Ireland to field two battalions at the same time to the Congo. Um, and many people had never left the country. Um, we went out initially with World War I era rifles, the bolt-action Lee-Enfield um, rifle and i suppose that was indicative of where we were and where, how our, our standing was but very quickly they proved themselves to be very very capable peacekeepers and if we think about peacekeeping and peace support operations there's a spectrum of conflict going from you know war fighting at one end to post-conflict sort of gendarmerie operations at the other end the irish troops had expected something at the lower end but in fact ended up halfway up that scale, if you like. The similarities between
6: Congo and Lebanon are very, very stark in in that people were exposed to some horrific scenes. Particularly from the Congo, they had to go out into villages that had been laid waste by the gendarmerie in in the province of Katanga, they had to bury the dead. Men, women and children were mutilated, were dead at this stage. And that continued even right through Lebanon, through some of the attacks we would have had, particularly in 1996, During that Operation Grapes of Wrath in Lebanon when the Israelis had a major uh, offensive operation and Irishmen went out there and they took families out of uh, wrecked buildings from
8: Shelley. My granddad Benjamin Riley joined the Defence Force on 2nd July 1922. He was still in the army when my father joined on the 1st of February 1961. My father was still in the army when I joined on the 5th of November 1979. So, on the 22nd of July 2022, we'll have 100 years continuous service between my grandfather, my father, and myself. My father got married on the 15th of June 1961 to my mum, and on the 16th of June, the following day, he was posted to the Congo for six months. So, my mother, a young bride, was left at home for, for six months on her own. I actually photographed a photograph in my bag of my father who was writing a letter to my mother while in the Congo. And it just showed like that that could have taken two or three weeks to get home. So you couldn't really write a letter and wait for a reply because you'd only probably sent two or three letters then in the six months.
2: You know, in one sense everybody serves. You know, the, 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 the partners, the wives, the parents, the children of, of those that are serving. When we thank people for their service, we're not just thanking. Those that have served, we're thanking those that have supported those that have served.
5: My first trip when I toured to duty when I arrived in Lebanon, I was glad to have been there because my father had done it before me, and my, my grandfather had done it, served in Cyprus with, with um, the UN as well.
2: The Lebanon, of course, comes to mind where we have served for uh, since the 70s and longer, whereby you know we are uniquely identifiable probably in the Lebanon because Ireland has been there for so long.
5: The bond with the Lebanese people and the Irish soldier is phenomenal. There is a massive connection there always will be, I think.
3: i have uh, had the opportunity to serve in different parts of the world and to visit other places, and served in the, on Operation Pontus in the Mediterranean Sea in 2016, which was the uh, Irish state's response to the migrant crisis that was happening in, in the Mediterranean at the time there was a huge sense of purpose I think when we were down there uh, you know for every kind of tragic situation we came across that was far outweighed by the number of successful missions we had where we rescued people in distress and we got them from maybe war-torn or very difficult situations and brought them to, to a place of safety.
2: Our own Taoiseach he identified uh, the United Nations as the conscience of humanity and I think that's a very very apt statement that really encapsulates, I suppose, the rationale and the reasoning behind such a commitment
0: serious challenge faced the Irish Defence Forces in 1969 with the outbreak of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Initially the Irish government was very unsure how to respond to that and that's reflected in the use of the army as well. Uh, Reservists were called up, there was talk of setting up field hospitals along the border for refugees, Um, obviously more of the army was sent to police the border but in the long run over the 30 years of the Troubles the combatants tended to keep the conflict out of the south. From the provisional IRA's point of view, they were determined not to engage the Irish state. Uh, Obviously there were some engagements during the Irish state, there were uh, high profile events such as the killing of the British ambassador and Lord Mountbatten, but other than that the provisionals were wary of getting the backs up of the Irish government. So there's there very little deliberate targeting of members of the security forces, which, which is why we have the situation where only one member of the Defence Forces died uh, on an engagement during the Troubles, in some ways it was indirect because it was related to the efforts of the Gardaí and the army to rescue the kidnapped uh, supermarket um, director Don Tidy in 1983. In 1972,
6: in April, there was a special intake of cadet class in January of that year, the, we had Bloody Sunday in Derry with 13 civilians killed, and that was the biggest. That, that year, 1972, was the biggest number of fatalities in Northern Ireland. I, I suppose my generation, really, what we refer to as internal security generation, you know. And I was commissioned in 73. The situation in Northern Ireland had really escalated. Yet all of these terrorist organizations on the two sides, the, the so-called Loyalists and the so-called Republicans, and, we were very much involved. The Defence Forces was very much deeply involved. We were supporting the Guardie, and very, very deeply involved. And we, we did everything at the time. We, were, we, we guard on guard banks, the central bank. We, we escorted jelly uh, from the production plant out near Enfield to the border. We would have had presence uh, when the County Councils were blasting in quarries and doing road works at this stage. We had a military presence. We escorted cash in transit. Uh, right through from the the central bank, right through banks throughout the country. And that was your daily bread and butter, you know. You you didn't really know on a Monday morning what you are going to be doing for the
7: rest of the week. You know, we talk often about overseas service, but we need to remember as well that our soldiers train conventionally and that our primary mission actually is to defend the state against armed aggression. I think the role that the Army played and the Defence Forces in general played in the troubles and in securing our state has possibly been underappreciated. Thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of mobile support groups patrolling that border securing it from the lowest level in terms of you know diesel and fuel smuggling um, which were enablers indeed for terrorist activity right up to specialist explosive uh, ordnance disposal teams as in bomb disposal teams uh, who often had to operate in very very difficult and arduous Um, conditions. So I dare say that without the presence of the Defence Forces, um, our country would have been much the worse for it.
2: We are now at the, I suppose, what I would consider a seminal point in terms of the future of the Defence Forces. 2022 is important to the Defence Forces because it is not only marks a huge step in terms of the state and being a hundred years of uh, the civil war, uh, but it also marks a huge time for the defense forces because at the beginning of this year, a commission on defense forces, which was set up by the government a year prior to that, reported to the government just in February this year. And the government has created a momentum around that report in terms of an action plan that it has approved uh, in July of this year. This sets the Defence Forces and the future of the Defence Forces in an opportunity to meet the challenges that exist today. They have set down a very clear level of ambition for the Defence Forces. They've set down a very clear timeline in which they want us to achieve that. But more importantly than anything, They have committed to resourcing the changes to meet that level of ambition that they have set. The totality of that ambition and the challenge will not be met probably in the the few years that I will be in charge of the Defence Forces. But I know that I and all of those serving today, we have a huge opportunity now to realise what the government have enabled us to do. We're going to have to run, if you like, to make sure that we get to the end of what will be a marathon, not a sprint, in creating a defense forces for the future, and to realize what the commission has set down in terms of its vision for us as a defense forces. And that commission was set up of a very broad, uh, very diverse group of people from different walks of society. So it's very representative of the people. And at the end of the day, the Defence Forces is of the people and it's for the people. And it's my desire that by 2030, that we will have succeeded in bringing that vision that the Commission has laid down into fruition. For me, you know, we are going to have to become a a far greater and more agile force. We're going to have to become more flexible in our approach. We're going to have to be innovative. We're going to have to be more responsive to technology. We're going to have to be poised in a manner that we're able to be responsive in, in, a, in a faster and more dynamic way.
5: The opportunities afforded you with the Defence Forces is, is massive. There's nothing you can't get, you know what I mean? You just have to have a sense of drive. Every opportunity is there for you to take. You can be fire crew, you can be a cook, you can be an air traffic controller, you can be a winchman, a winch woman. you can be a flight attendant. I don't see why they wouldn't want to join, but I'm just probably biased.
3: <laughs> I think the, a career in the Defence Forces is, is, is very varied. Uh, I've found it always gives you a great sense of purpose and that you, uh, you feel like you belong to the, the greater good and you're contributing to, 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 to Ireland and to the state.
6: In the Defence Forces, we say we serve. We swear to take an oath of fidelity to, to Ireland and, and o- to upkeep the Constitution. That's what it's about. That's what we're all about
2: and long may it last. People look at a military and a Defence Forces and they see big green trucks, or they see nice aeroplanes, or they see big ships. But it's nothing without the people and the people that are willing to serve. But Most importantly, it's about those who will serve in the future. I'm very confident that we will stand firm for another 100 years. So I, I told you, you could tell the story a lot better than I could. Um, I hope and trust you enjoy that. It's a, it's a certainly a nice change of pace, um, and that we also are grateful, of course, to the Riada family, and that's Sean Riada's grand- granddaughter. I think is O'Quinnie's grand- granddaughter, um, and by kind permission, allowed us to use uh, his music, Mishaera, in the film, which I think is very appropriate. So I, I do trust that that blend of the spoken word and that on screen has helped you to have an appreciation of Ogling the Hearn and that I have met my purpose of trying to relate to you a sense of what it is to be in the service of the state for me and for all my colleagues that serve today, for all of those who have served in a very unique history of the Defence Forces and for those that will serve in the future. And I would like to, I suppose, do a plug, if I can. Um, we will publish a, a unique history of Oglinge because along with the, the documentary, we've tried to capture it with a, a book, a centenary book, which we hope to publish uh, in March of 2023. And that, along with Dan Iotis's book, which I mentioned earlier on the military archives, I, c- I could commend both of them very sincerely to you, as uh, for those of you that would have an interest. Uh, in pursuing this a little bit further, perhaps, or maybe recapping what I've spoken to you about this evening. So thank you all for listening to me. Uh, I'm very grateful for your attendance and for your interest uh, in Ogilvy and and the service of the state. And uh, I think we're going to take maybe one or two questions, but maybe observations or comments. Uh, uh, Questions are tough this early evening. (laughs) But uh, the floor is open, I think. I think there's a gentleman with a microphone, maybe.
8: Donal O'Brollican,
6: um, Don. is it true that um, officer in the cadet school that you actually study the Constitution, which I gather is unique among
8: all public servants?
2: That's a very interesting question. That's, um, I won't tell you how long, it's a long time since I did my cadet uh, and I'm not privy to the exact syllabus. Uh, we do refer to it. Uh, we don't study it per se as a as subject. I think that's an honest answer. Um, I was very involved in, in, in authoring the, the leadership doctrine for the defense forces. And during that period, um, uh, we published it in 2016, uh, to coincide with the, with the 1916 rising. And it was the first time in the history of Ogligniherm that we had captured the leadership doctrine of the forces at that time, but reflective of the period. And one of the things that I did personally uh, uh, during that time was study the constitution and study the impact of it uh, in terms of the values and the values-based leadership doctrine that we have in our organisation today so that reflect uh, the constitution and the doctrine reflects what's in the constitution. So uh, it's not the answer you, but it's, uh, we do study it but we don't study it as a subject per se but it's referenced and referred to and often referred to within the, the academic side of the, of the, of the teaching.
9: Uh, I'd like to compliment Lieutenant General for uh, what I think was a splendid presentation and a very difficult one, and he manoeuvred through the early years, I thought, magnificently. Now, the next thing I'd like to say is to refer to the connection between the RDS and the Defence Forces. I was delighted to hear him refer to the founding of the Army School of Music and the Army School of Equitation. Because at a time when funds were really short, it was a remarkable achievement of that first government. And we have maintained our connection with the Defence Forces, mentioning the RDS now, over the years, we're all familiar with our participation in the horse show, which for many people make the horse show. But people tend to forget too that we had a camp here during the emergency, right. when members of the defense forces were stationed here in the RDS premises during the emergency, right. and one of them became Tishuk. later on, Liam Cosgrove. That's right. He was stationed here in the army as an army officer. So we have a splendid connection with the defense forces. Now, I, other people want to make a remark, so I'm not going to carry on, but uh, I would again think this is a remarkable evening. A wonderful contribution, both in the talk and in the film. And thank you. It's great that it's here in the Arneus. And thank you very, very much. You're welcome, and thank you. Very-
2: Thank thank you for your comments and uh, I should point out that I am accompanied this evening, one of of those that have come to support me is Lieutenant Colonel Tom Frame. Tom is the current officer commanding the Equitation School and you mentioned Liam Cosgrave, Um, Liam actually opened the outdoor arena, he was one of his last acts probably before he died the Lord have Mercy on him because he had a great strong uh, affiliation with the Equitation School and he was a huge supporter of the school because of course the original raison d'etre and still remains that today is to promote the Irish horse and uh, I think that was very visionary at the time as you said in the first government to Colonel Hogan and WT Whittaker and Wiley from here to actually collaborate I suppose if you like to bring that to fruition and it was an extraordinary achievement at a, a very very difficult time for the state so thank you for that
10: I'm, P- I'm Peter Kelly um, I'm just interested to know whether among the older, larger armed forces in, in the world, uh, does Ogilina Heron find a particular cultural role model?
2: Oh, um, I'd like to think others would have a role model with us, or consider us as a role model. Um, <laughs> um, I, I look at that, that the, uh, what comes to mind straight away is two, two parts you have the conventional capability and, and ultimate war, you know, that, that structured force that I see today that we would look to for a role model and who we affiliate or associate with. And we generally tend to look at like-minded, similar sized countries that would have an effective combination of volunteer permanent force and a reserve force. And Finland always comes to mind uh, in, in those circumstances. Uh, Finland are very similar in size of their permanent standing force. Uh, they have a a, a a huge reserve ethos uh, and a reserve where we have neglected for too many years now. Uh, I'm determined to regenerate the reserve in particular the current or uh, the current security environment that we face, but not only that because the commission demands it of us, but I'm uh, it demands it of us because the likes of myself and the general staff and other leadership and others external including in particular those that are so committed and volunteer and serve within the reserve today made submissions and promoted that need. Uh, The second part is is, is centered on the values and the contribution and the ethos of the force. So that's a very easy piece in terms of those like-minded democratic states that have military forces that are stood up to defend those freedoms and that that subscribe to the same values as we do. And then I wouldn't look much further than the Scandinavian countries in those cases either, but also to New Zealand. Now that's a personal, as much as professional uh, uh, attribution to New Zealand, but I've had many experiences in New Zealand, I've been there, I've visited our forces, I've met and I have a a relationship with the, the, Chief of Defence there, that's just a networking relationship but we have found common ground, common good, common understanding and that always helps when you want to try and support one another. But we have reached out to many countries, we have pilots operating out in Australia, we have officers and NCOs that go to America to generally bring a wider perspective, uh, uh, viewpoints and to expand our knowledge base which is important to sustaining the organisation and making it fit for purpose today and for tomorrow. Hi. First of all, the talk was, uh, your talk was absolutely amazing. Second of all, I'm actually very jealous of being old because if I was young now, I'm not too sure if I would join the Air Corps, uh, the Army or the, uh, the Navy. It's not very often I'm jealous, but I actually am now of that. Is there any country, though, at the moment in Europe that has started conscripting uh, people into their forces? Um, there, are many, there are many militaries that have conscription, Yes. Uh, and some are renewing that policy uh, in Europe, especially in some of the Scandinavian countries. Sweden have reverted back to it after 10 years. A lot of it is, is uh, catalyzed as a consequence of, for instance, uh, those countries that are now changing and becoming NATO members. Um, but conscription is, is a piece whereby um, you have to serve, uh, you have to, to come up and serve for a period of time, and then you leave the force, but you go on to the reserve force. Uh, so you have. Uh, I I won't name countries now in case I get them wrong, but several countries, in particular Scandinavian countries, uh, where you must serve a minimum period of 6 months or 12 months, you get full military training in that period of time, and then you will join the active reserve and remain on that reserve for call-up. So, for example, um, Finland, in terms of size and quantity, are of a similar size to us in their standing force. In other words, they have about... 9,000 permanent defense members, that's all. They have a 1,500-kilometer border with Russia. They can exercise or stand up a reserve multiple, multiple times of that within seven time zones. And I'm talking about 48 hours, I'm talking about seven days, I'm talking about 10 days. They have the infrastructure and the structures built throughout their country to take it in. So they have command and control structures within the permanent force that can then be populated with all of the reservists. And the reservists would, I don't have the numbers now, I should have them, but I don't in that particular, but it's certainly, it's, it's north of 100,000 that they can stand up in a very short period of time. All of their country, their, 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 their defense policy, in other words, their high level goal set by government is very simple, defend Finland. Two words, that's their defense high level goal. They do that by an active reserve with a permanent structures built in around that. They have all the capabilities, the equipment and so infrastructures to support not the nine and a half thousand but the hundred thousand plus that can come to work within a week or two weeks or whatever it is because they are active reservists. In the initial part, it's conscription because they have to do active service for a period of time. That's as an example. But There are several countries like that, yes.
10: Sorry, sir, I, I won't stand up. But firstly, can I just say, I wish to congratulate you on a very distinguished career. You didn't go for the brown shoes straight away, you did it the hard way. Um, in-house joke. Um, during the late 60s, I was very fortunate to uh, attend a secondary school that had a training platoon attached Um, and there were several of those around the city and in fact around the country Um, we were in CBC in Monkstown, uh, Belvedere College, Clongos a few more and the idea was that if in the event of the balloon going up you had young men with a certain basic element of training who then could be possibly fast-tracked, commissioned and as you say populate the tree could you see a future for this again?
2: Um, first of all, we're not allowed child soldiers anymore. So we definitely couldn't. Uh, that against, goes against the, the Convention on Human Rights. Um, uh, sorry. On the wall of the CQ's office, And that was the case, of course. And uh, but. And, and our reserve at the time was FCA and, and other names at the time, uh, you know, there was, you know, we have anecdotal stories, and, and they are true, we have no reason to believe they're not, we had 13 and 14 year olds serving in the, in the, in, in the FCA at that time. But I'd like to think we, we have a far more professional approach now. Uh, so there's two things, we have to regenerate our reserve, and we have to do so very aggressively, and there's, we have to regenerate it by more than 3,000 people we have to create the environment where we can recruit and retain a further 3,000 in the permanent force today, because that's what the Commission asks us to do, we must do that by 2028. That is an enormous challenge. Um, I, I'm putting a recruitment and retention strategy I've the recruitment piece done, we're looking at the, the retention piece, uh, but, and we're looking at a wider, much wider approach to recruitment. We're looking at a much more diverse approach to retention, but I don't have control all the issues around retention. They're generally outside of my control. We won't go back to your particular innovative idea of 1969, I'm for sure of that, uh, but we have a, a lot more, You know, we have a, we're open-minded and we're very much open about how we're going to approach different ways of recruitment because we can no longer do the same thing again when it didn't work the first time that's, I think they call that madness, um, when you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, you know? Um, so we're very focused on that. Um, unfortunately, we're being judged by it, but when you're in an environment where there is a between 94 and 96% employment rate in this country, we have a 4.4% unemployment rate at the currently, when, it, when you have between 94 and 96%, it's called full employment. When you're in in an environment where you have a demand greater than supply and you're a public sector employer with high value targets, as we call in the military, people of worth, of value, of qualifications, of skill sets, you become highly desirable in the economy. And therefore it's very difficult to retain people. So we're trying to build a whole value added package around that but it's very hard to compete with those marketplaces. But we are far more successful in our recruitment than many public sector bodies currently. We will have recruited at the end of this year 428 people, but we have lost nearly 700. That cannot be sustained. And that's the the depth of the challenge I face. But I'm determined to turn that around, and we have to close the gap if we can decrease the number that leave and retain people. And increase the number we train, and that's how we get around it. The guards were didn't, the guards on the other. They have they they, they weren't able to recruit more than hundred people this year. So that's the that's the, the level of challenge we face within the, within the environment, uh, which is the economy, which is the employment structure as it stands. There's economists in this audience that could articulate that far better than I could? Right, Kevin. Thank you for your question. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.